Schoolboys as young as 10 were involved in a massive homosexual child vice ring, a court was told yesterday. Police investigating a child sex ring in Southend have uncovered a link to a notorious London paedophile gang. Essex local newspaper The Yellow Advertiser's tenacity yielded some astonishing results. Essex police have announced a review of the facts of the case and they're appealing for victims to come forward. Hello and welcome to this series of Unfinished with me, Charles Thompson. I'm an investigative reporter for the media group Archon, but this series will tell the story of my last five years in my old job. I used to be the news editor at a weekly newspaper series called The Yellow Advertiser, where I covered the coastal county of Essex in the east of England. One day, sitting at my desk, my phone rang. It was the receptionist downstairs. She said somebody had walked into our offices and asked to see me. I headed down and found a white-haired, neatly-dressed man waiting for me. He introduced himself as Robin Jamieson. He was a former NHS manager in the nearby seaside town of Southend, and he said he had a mystery he wanted me to help him solve. This mystery had landed on Robin's desk more than 25 years ago, in 1989, and he'd been trying to work it out ever since. He'd approached various journalists, but none had ever been able to help. The question he was trying to answer was, why would a police force fail to investigate a major paedophile ring, even if it was being presented with a wealth of evidence and intelligence? I'd been looking into the Shoebury case for 25 years. I knew there was a huge problem in child protection in South End in 1990, which wasn't properly investigated by the police and was covered up by social services. The butterfly effect of that initial meeting with Robin would have enormous consequences. My investigation has continued ever since. It's uncovered allegations of corruption, intimidation, and connections to a notorious gang of child-killing paedophiles. Since 2015, I've been tracking down charity workers, health professionals, and victims from the original case to unpick what happened and why. This podcast will draw on my original investigative materials, my tape-recorded interviews, my notes, the paperwork I uncovered, as I went about trying to solve Robin's mystery. Many of the events recounted in this podcast took place in the 1980s or even earlier. Attitudes were different in bygone years. Paedophilia was often conflated with homosexuality. As such, Some of the language used in press reports and other documents from the time, which this podcast will include, is not the language we would choose to use in the present day. Similarly, the authorities' decision to describe what occurred in Shubri as a sex ring, rather than an abuse ring or a paedophile ring, would hopefully not be repeated today. However, we have kept the original language of the source documents for the sake of accuracy. My work on this story led to two new police investigations and won several journalism awards, but there remain huge unanswered questions about why suspects were not brought to justice and why those who were caught were let off with minimal sentences. These episodes of Unfinished will detail what we now know and what remains hidden. In this first episode, we're going to find out about what Southend was like in the 1980s, and in particular, the area of Shoebury, which was the epicentre of this scandal. We'll hear from the charity workers who uncovered the web of abuse, and from some of the victims. But for now, let's start at the beginning of my investigation. 
In late 2014, whilst going through some financial data published by Essex County Council, I discovered that the authority had been making regular out-of-court payments over historic abuse allegations connected to its children's departments. The allegations began in the 1970s and were as recent as the 2000s, but when I asked Essex Council some basic questions about these payments, it refused to answer a single one of them. In two front-page stories in January 2015, the Yellow Advertiser teamed up with a leading child abuse charity to publicly call on Essex Council to come clean about the payments. But it didn't, and I thought that was the end of it for the time being. Then, one snowy day in February, came that phone call from reception. They said a man had walked in and asked to speak to the reporter who wrote the Essex Council child abuse stories. This was the first time I met Robin Jamieson. 1989-1990, I was district psychologist covering part of Essex at South End, Canvey Island, Castle Point and Rochford, based at Runwell Hospital. And um, I was alerted to a problem by one of my staff, a psychologist working with children, that there'd been a couple of paedophiles arrested in Shoebury. And uh, they began to look into it, and it was a, lot, a big case with a lot of children involved and starting to look like a network. So they'd set up a system with um, a research so social worker doing a report, researching it and doing a report on the scale of the problem and setting up a training course for staff. And I got involved with the training because I'd been working with some paedophiles in a previous job. And as it developed, we became aware that the police were saying they would have to restart the investigation because of the scale of the problem, but it never happened. And they just dealt with two suspects without beginning, even beginning to look at the wider network of abuse. And increasingly, we were aware of failures within social services. And I knew that sooner or later, some of those people would come forward and start telling the story and probably 25 years was enough time they were no longer scared little children some of them had probably grown up into reasonably confident adults that could tell the story i thought it would come out sooner or later so while i was away i'd been traveling all over the world i'd even driven all the way around australia during that time but every now and then i checked up on the stories in essex and i thought eventually somebody would start talking about it and the story would come out and then in one of my searches, I came across the article in the Yale Advertiser about unexplained compensation payments. So I thought this is an opportunity for the untold story to emerge. In the late 1980s, Southend had seen an explosion in youth offending, particularly by boys from the Shubury area. Shubury's seafront was less developed than around the Southend tourist attractions, and away from the beach, it was largely residential with pockets of significant poverty. In the late 1980s, boys from the Shubury area began embarking on crime sprees which served no purpose and made no sense, frequently resulting in no material gain. It was nihilistic offending, so brazen and so pointless that it appeared to the local authorities as though the boys just wanted to get caught. This outbreak of bizarre offending attracted the attention of a pioneering youth justice organisation called the Rainer Project. Its aim was to prevent young offenders from going into custody, where they were more likely to become hardened criminals, and instead investigate what was driving them to offend in the first place. In the late 1980s, its South End team was managed by Chris Hickey, who I tracked down in 2016. 
Their behaviour was so unusual. Our project existed to deal with offenders. That's why we were there. We, we dealt with the most prolific offenders in Southend at the time. But this was offending on a completely different scale. They'd commit 30 burglaries in a day. And I'm just thinking there, what's going on here? You know, normally kids go out and commit one or two burglaries or do something like that. And that's normal. They might, over a week, accumulate a number of burglaries. You know, over a number of weeks, you might get 20 or 30. But this was something completely different. The other signature offence was um, stealing cars. And now normally, if you're going to steal a car, you steal one, you get it, jump into it, you drive around like a lunatic, and then that's fun for the evening. But these are doing six, eight, ten every night, driving around, crashing them, burning them. And you're just going, look, hang on here. This is offending on, on a scale that we just didn't see. Adrian Williams, from children's charity, the NSPCC, also worked on the official response to the Shoebury problem, starting in 1989. I tracked him down and filmed an interview with him in spring 2018. Normally, for a young person, they commit a crime for a particular reason. What we saw in Shoebury is that they were, you know, they broke into somebody's house, somebody's car, and about 10 feet away, you'd find all the stuff. They weren't actually doing it for personal gain. The Rayner Project offered young offenders hours-long counselling sessions where they were asked in detail about their offending. Rayner believed that if a youngster was sent to prison, the same external factors which had driven them to offend in the first place would still exist by the time they got out, only now they would be harder, more damaged, and more likely to escalate their offending. Rayner's mission was to try to discover the root cause. Poverty, domestic violence, sexual abuse, mental illness. By curing the cause, they believed they could cure the offending. One of their most perplexing cases was a boy we're calling Jack to protect his anonymity. By his mid-teens, Jack was regarded as the most prolific car thief in Southend. He'd clocked up so many offences of taking without consent, or twock, if you want to use the police anagram, that the local police called him the Little Twocker. I spoke to a man who'd grown up on the estate alongside Jack. He agreed to let me broadcast his voice, but not his name. We'll call him Sammy. He recalled Jack's antics. Well, they used to do it with a group of them, and they used to nick cars all the time. And they wasn't, you know, nicking cars, selling cars, or selling the bits, or making money for it. They was just seemed to be nicking the cars to attract the police attention to get into trouble. One of the things that he used to do, one of the regular things, is he'd pull up outside the police station, beep his own, stick his fingers up at the old bill, and boom, off he'd go. So it's, it's sort of like the antithesis of what you'd expect a car thief to do because he's stealing the car and then going to the police station and sort of waving at the police out of the window of the car he's just stolen. Yeah, he was in it for the chase and to get caught most of the time. Here's Chris Hickey talking about how prolific an offender Jack was. He had an appearance in court. I was in Southend Magistrates Court. It was The case was dealt with and I said to him... Okay, and his parents who were there, I'll see you at the project. Now, the court's at one end of the high street, the project's at the other, so I walked back down to the project, which was 10, 15 minute walk max. Get into the project, phone goes, and it's the police. They said, yeah, um, you need to come and see Jack. I said, no, he's, he's on his way here, he's all right. They said, no, no, you need to come down to the police station and see Jack. I said, look, I, I don't. He's just been in magistrate's court. He's been released. He's on his way here. They say, he is here in the cells. What do you mean? What he'd done was 
from seeing me in the corridor outside the court, he had gone downstairs into the car park in the magistrate's court, stolen a car, driven it, crashed it, been caught by the police, arrested and taken to the police station in the time that I had taken to walk 15, 20 minutes down to the end of the, the street. That's the kind of offender he was. They hated him with a passion. He was taunting them to try and get them to chase him and it was very dangerous and he was what he was doing was very dangerous. And so they really formed this passionate loathing and hatred of him. His name was enough to send your average street bobby into frothing at the mouth in terms of expletives and he should be locked up and throwing away the key and all that sort of stuff. Chris had tried for a year to find the root cause of Jack's apparent addiction to reckless offending. Finally, one evening in early 1989, he sensed something about Jack's mood was different. So I've been working for about a year, not really getting very far neither, but building trust and rapport with him. And, and we were sitting in the room and uh, he wasn't saying anything and he really wasn't um, saying very much at all. He was becoming less and less communicative. And, and normally he chatted okay and he was getting quieter and quieter and the silences were getting longer. And it was getting dark slowly, dusk was falling. And we were sitting in there and it, I just got the sense that something was there. And I really, I didn't want to move. I was very still. And I thought that if, if I do anything or move or turn the light on or try and move on or even try and speak, it, a spell would be broken. As we're sitting there, he's smoking. And gradually the cigarette got down to near enough the butt and at the point where you could put it out and he put out his hand and he started to burn himself with the cigarette and where I could see him it's clear that he'd burnt himself before and then he started to tell me started to tell me what was happening and you know out it came and it's tumbling out and it was shocking. One day on Shubury's Eagle Way estate a few years earlier Jack had spotted a sports car that looked out of place amidst its deprived surroundings. He wandered over for a better look. As he admired it, a white-haired man emerged from the block of flats it was parked outside and started to talk to him. He was the car's owner, he said. His name was Dave. Youth worker Rob West had grown up in Shubury and now worked with Chris Hickey at the Rayner Project. Like Chris, he worked with Jack. Here's Rob, explaining how things developed between the boy and the stranger with the fancy car. That's a magnet for boys. When they see this car, look at it. He was outside looking at the car. Oh, you like the car? Yeah. Do you want to clean it? Give you give you a pound. Pound's a lot of money back then. He'd come and clean it. He'd clean it regularly. So he's grooming him, creating a safety. Is this guy okay? Is he not? As a young lad, you tend to know... You tell, you, if he said, do you want to come out in it straight away, he probably wouldn't get in the car with a stranger. But if he was cleaning it regularly, so four or five weeks later, getting a pound each time, and maybe a little bit extra, do you want a cup of tea, do you want this, do you want that, do you want some sweets, do you want, you know, then it's, yeah, come out in it. So off they went in the car, drove back. The boy's safe, feels secure, but he's grooming him. He's creating a safe platform for abuse. What happened next was he said, well, you know, come and have a drink upstairs. And, and basically in the house, in this particular flat, he had video of all the videos, as in the top 40 videos. He had optics in the corner as well. This is what the boys told me. Several boys confirmed that. And 
So the boys would, oh, do you want to watch a movie? Yeah. So they sat and watched movies. Eventually, do you want a drink? Well, these are young lads that maybe haven't had a lot of exposure to alcohol, but maybe some of them had, but they drank and they were settled and they were relaxed. And that's when the hands went on the legs of the boys and the abuse occurred. At roughly the same time that the Rainer Project unearthed Shubury's dark secret, so did another local youth organisation. The Shubury Family Centre ran a regular youth club for teens to congregate, play games, watch films, and just generally stay out of trouble. I interviewed one of the Family Centre staff, who agreed to speak but was worried about being named. Here's an excerpt from one of our interviews, read by an actor. Throughout the series, he will be referred to as Mr X. It was only a matter of months, or even weeks after I got there. This old geezer walks in with some keyboards and said they were for one of the boys who used to be a regular. He asked could he come in and leave them there for him. As he left, one of the kids said, Here, what's he doing in here? Dodgy Dave. I said, What do you mean, Dodgy Dave? They went, He's a kiddie fiddler. He pays you. He was aghast. What was going on in Shubury that the neighbourhood paedophile in his mid-fifties felt confident enough to wander into its youth centre flaunting his association with the local boys. If everybody knew who he was and what he did, why wasn't anybody doing anything about it? I find it really difficult to believe that no one found out about this before I got there. I was only there a matter of months, if that. I mean, it just smacked you in the face. The kids told me. The unfathomable thing is that it was so blatantly obviously going on. I asked Sammy, who we heard from earlier, just how well known it had been. So as far as what was going on with the abuse of the kids, was it known before the police raided them? Was it kind of an open secret? Yeah, among, amongst sort of everyone around the estate, it was, yeah. We all know what was going on up there. He was known as Dodgy Dave. But uh, it was known to everyone away. And, you know, there was a few people that went up there, but they seemed to be the ones that were getting into trouble. They were the ones that were going up there. And so, how did people know what was going on up there? Well, most of the time, <clears throat> because we used to smoke drugs in the, uh, smoke cannabis in the, there was blocks of flats on the estate, and you could go in the lobbies, and it was an easy place to go sit on the stairs and smoke cannabis. So we saw people going up and down to the flats, various flats, we got to know the people that were selling the cannabis on the estate. You get to know and see the smackheads. And that they weren't crackheads back then. It was mostly heroin addicts, and that's how we knew. We used to see them going in and out of places, and that. And so, what was the reason that heroin addicts were going in and out of Dodgy Dave's flat? Yes, from what I remember, he used to sell Valium. I can remember a lot of my people that I used to hang around with going up there and and getting Valium and seeing a lot of the heroin addicts going up there and getting Valium. And some of the places that flats that we used to go in and smoke cannabis. Like people we know, they would often say about it. He used to get a lot of uh, tablets, tranquilizers. Blimey! So he was selling tranquilizers to people. Yeah, yeah. Well, how did you know about the the paedophilia stuff though? Because we had a couple of friends that used to go up there. That, like I said, people not friends as such, but people that I knew of that were on the estate and ones that were getting in trouble all the time and it was rumoured that they used to often go up there and do sexual favours for drugs. And so, was he somebody that you would see around the estate then, Dodgy Dave? 
wouldn't really see him walking around the estate, but you'd often see him looking out his window or standing at his window, or he was known on the estate. Could you um, describe him for me? From what I remember, we, uh, I don't remember the actual size of the boat, but he had long white hair. I just remember his long white hair, and I think he had glasses. As Rainer staff spoke to Jack, and other boys who also began to disclose their relationships with Dave, they discovered one of the reasons they'd stayed silent for so long. Dave wasn't just a child molester and a drug dealer. He was also a serially convicted thief, fraudster, and dealer in stolen goods. And he'd roped the boys into his dishonest practices. Some child protection workers later wrote an academic paper about the case, likening Dave to Fagin, from Oliver Twist. Here's Rob West. Many of the boys that I worked with, they were involved in car crimes, breaking into cars and taking the car radios. That was part of their connection. The problem with that for them, they were being abused. They were taking the car radios, getting paid for those those car radios, maybe 30, 40, 50 pounds for a car radio. So then how can I go to the police or my parents and say, these guys are abusing me, when I'm involved in a criminal network? Unfortunately, if Dave was Fagin... Jack would turn out to be the artful dodger, who in Charles Dickens' novel lured Oliver back to Fagin's den. Chris Hickey and Rob West explain. You know, within a very short period of time, weeks, a few weeks, we appreciated that it wasn't just Jack. There was a a group of boys. The image of Fagin and his creating this little safe haven for waifs and strays that you get in Oliver Twist. If you read and know about Fagin, Fagin's relationship with the boys, although he's doing unspeakable things and he's teaching them how to steal and rob and attack and do terrible things, right? They have this fantastic loyalty to him. And it becomes clear that Jack is the one who recruits boys to go and join Fagin's gang. And just like that early scene in Oliver Twist where Oliver happens upon the Artful Dodger in the street, we found out that he had that status in the group. One of them was an Artful Dodger. One of them was almost a recruiter. And that particular boy admitted that he actually uh, invited other boys to come and help him clean a car to introduce to the men the next one. But for him, it was one way of getting away When word got out that the Dodger had blown the whistle to the youth workers, others felt safe to do the same. Here's Chris Hickey. So when he starts to tell, he allows and permits the others, it's okay to talk, it's okay to say what what went on. So we start to find out that the process was something like this. He's not approaching strange boys in the street. He is approaching people who are at school with him, who live in the same estate, who, if he doesn't know them, they certainly know him. Everybody knew who Jack was. But chatting to them, so suddenly they get the attention from this notable figure in the community and a guy with status. And he starts saying, hi, you know, do you want to come, do you want to, do you want to come around and play games, right? Do you want to come and have a drink? Do you want to come and watch some movies? And suddenly they're going, yeah, yeah, great, you know, let's bunk off school. And then they're going around. And then, you know, some of the movies they're watching are, uh, you know, Grease or some, you know, perfectly normal film. And then suddenly they're watching pornos and they're having, they're not drinking Coke, they're drinking alcohol, beer, you know, lager. And it's, a, you know, a corrupting process. 
And here's Rob West. I probably had at least eight or nine boys that talked to me about their abuse. And I and, and as a team, we probably had 12 to 15 boys. Many of them were offenders. They're one of the most vulnerable groups, both victim and offender. I don't know which came first. I would suggest, certainly from the boys' stories, many of them became offenders following the abuse. For some of them, it was a clear cry for help. Please help me see me. See me, help me, rescue me, you know. Lock me up even. It's safer in prison than it is what's happening to me over there. The psychological consequences for Jack of what he'd done were enormous, says Chris. What's happening to him is loathsome, and in his heart of hearts, he is appalled and repelled and disgusted by having been sexually assaulted. And that's the price that he paid for this, and that's why he was constantly trying to kill himself in cars. But it wasn't only Jack. As the abuse had continued over several years, the pattern had repeated itself. The boys Jack recruited were then pressured to recruit other boys, and so on, and so on. And so the web of abuse stretched ever further into the community. After disclosing what he knew, Jack gave the child protection workers a list of other boys he knew had been abused. One was a boy we're calling Ben. When I tracked him down and interviewed him, he told me he hadn't been recruited by Jack he'd been recruited by another boy who we're calling Max. Max was one of the boys who eventually disclosed his abuse to Rob West at the Rayner Project. Ben's words are being spoken by an actor to preserve his anonymity. Leading up to it, I can kind of remember, it wasn't nagging, but he just kept asking and asking about watching this film and going around his flat. I just remember it being sort of weird because it was just me and Max. There was a couple of other kids there. I don't know who they were. I was just very naive. I thought it was a bit weird. We were watching this film with some old guy, but that was it really. He would give out alcohol and let you watch horror films that were banned. Back in those days, it was hard to watch a banned horror film on VHS, or there were a lot of pirate films, and a lot of films that weren't even out on VHS yet. It all started out as getting drink, getting films... That's how it all started off. Ben was in his mid-teens, but the boys in Dave's flat always seemed to be younger than him, and he never saw any boys older than him. Dave said that he worked in a cafe, but for somebody on a cafe worker's wage, he seemed to Ben to have an extravagant lifestyle. It was almost like he was a kind of fence. I think that's probably how Max got involved initially, because he was a bit of a tea leaf. A tea leaf, for any listeners outside the UK is Cockney rhyming slang for thief. Boys would sell stuff to him. In his lounge, there was always stuff that would be out of place. There'd be kitchen appliances, he had loads of videos, obviously pirates, drink all over the place. Everything in there was all new and modern. In the time I was going there, he went through about three tellies and they got bigger and bigger every time. I went round there two or three times just to watch films and that. And then one day... It was just more drink or something else, but I just remember feeling really out of it. Dave took the intoxicated boy into his bedroom, laid him down, and raped him, then stuffed a ten-pound note into his hand. As he told me his story, Ben found it hard to explain why he kept going back after that. The booze and the cannabis became addictive. He told himself that as long as he wasn't the last one to leave, he'd be safe. But once he got there and became intoxicated, 
that plan didn't always work out. For every ten times he went there, he said, he might get abused only three. After a while, Ben was introduced to Dave's friend, Brian. Brian would pick up Ben in his car and drive him to secluded locations around South End, where he would abuse him inside the vehicle. As the abuse by the two men continued, Ben began to act out, drinking, smoking, bunking off school. His lowest point was stealing his parents' car and crashing it. Prior to that, I was just a normal sort of scallywag type, mucking about down the beach. Then I sort of went mad for two or three years. I basically missed the last year of school. I tracked down another of the victims, who was interviewed by police in the original case. We're calling him Zach. He, too, was introduced to Dave's friend Brian. In this excerpt from our interview, Zach's words will be read by an actor to preserve his anonymity. So how did you first meet Dave or Brian, whichever you met first? I was with a friend at the time, and we used to go round there. We was all at school at the same time, so I was friends with them all. What were you going around there for, though? Money. Do you mean they would pay you for sexual favours? Yeah. So you're talking about Dave's flat? Yeah, it was um, Cunningham Close, wasn't it? Did you ever go to Brian's place? No. And how old would you have been at this time? Uh, I was in juniors. How old would I have been in juniors? You were in juniors at primary school? Yeah, I was. And your friend that took you there, they were at junior school as well? Yeah, they, they were. How long did it go on for? About three years. Were you in high school by the time it finished? Yeah, I was going up to high school when it finished. Like Ben, Zach had been recruited by a friend. The information Zach gave me about which schools they were in meant that at the time Zach was first taken to Dave's flat, he was either eight or nine years old. This tallied roughly with something Rob West had told me. Some of the boys I worked with were 10 when it started. Some of them had been subject to abuse for over two years. So I think even up to, by the time it went to court, it was probably close to four years. So probably by the time they appeared in court, some of those boys that I was with were 14 and 15. But when they started, when they first entered that house, they were 10. And the ones that I know were 10 are dead now. They have taken their lives. Here's some more from my interview with Zach. So you would go around to Dave's flat, but Brian would be there. Yes. So the first time you went over there, did you know why you were going there or was it a surprise when you got there? Not really, because they were quite friendly towards me. We just thought we were doing the right thing. What do you mean by that? I was so young then, it was just about the money, wasn't it? So basically you thought, because you were being rewarded by an adult, you thought that meant you were being good? Yeah. Money was precious to a lot of the Shoebury boys. Like many British seaside towns, Southend, once a thriving tourist destination frequented by celebrities and royals, had begun slipping into decline with the increasing availability of international travel. Shoebury's Eagle Way Estate, a 20-minute walk from the nearest beach, and over 70 minutes walk from the Southend seafront attractions, was particularly run down. By the 1980s, a number of the estate's flats were well known as brothels and drugs dens. Others were used to house people who'd just been released from prison. Charity worker Mr X described the conditions on the estate. Non-British listeners should note the word nonce is slang for paedophile. 
Shrewbury was a place that was well known to nonces, as somewhere that was easy pickings for whatever you wanted. It was poor. You had some nice little houses on that estate, but I've got a fairly strong stomach. But even I really couldn't go in some of those front doors. They smelled that much. Those poor sods. It was like something out of the Victorian ages. Robin Jamieson and Rob West said that a community like the Eagle Way Estate was a prime location for a paedophile like Dave to set himself up. For the local kids, he was an island of wealth in a sea of deprivation. Chris Hickey and Rob West recalled the horror of learning from Shubri's teenage boys what had been going on for years, right under the authorities' noses. It was beyond anything that I had thought or conceived of or believed was possible. It was shocking. I mean, deeply, deeply shocking. And we we had to just try to just not get overwhelmed by it and keep a lid on our emotions and our sort of responses because I couldn't sit with Jack and go, oh my God, how dreadful this is and so on and so forth, you know. But I can tell you, it reduced me to tears. That's how powerful this was, that the shame around those boys was such that they, they couldn't speak to their own friends. They couldn't say, were you there as well? Two boys that I worked with, best mates, didn't know that were both in that house being abused at different times. Both the Rayner Project and the Family Centre reported their discoveries to police in 1989. From there, the exact sequence of events is sketchy. Essex Police claims to have destroyed all of its files on the case. When I attempted to obtain the court records in 2016, I was told they'd vanished from the archive. Every police officer I've found who worked on the case either claims not to remember it or refuses to discuss it. But here's what we do know from the records kept by other professionals. The police investigation began in spring 1989 after an initial two boys made statements. By May, police had enough evidence to make two arrests. On May the 4th, 1989, Officers raided the homes of two men and took them into custody. The first was Brian Tanner, a relatively well-known businessman who lived about a 15-minute drive away from Shoebury in Westcliff-on-Sea. The second was Dave. Only the police weren't calling him Dave. They were calling him Dennis King. By June 1989, there were 14 named victims. That month, Essex Council's Social Services Department convened the first of many multi-agency meetings held to coordinate the official response to what it was calling the Shoebury Sex Ring. Among the attendees were representatives of three charities who'd been asked to help provide therapeutic services for the victims and their families. As their work got underway, they discovered Shoebury's dark secret was even darker and more disturbing than had originally been thought. In June 1989, a story appeared in the Mirror newspaper. Detectives have smashed a sex-for-sale racket involving schoolboys and older men, including civil servants and businessmen. They cracked a secret code in the youngsters' diaries to discover names of the perverts involved, details of secret meeting places and times and dates. The vice ring, which police believe has been operating for three years, centres on posh areas of Southend and Shubriness in Essex. The boys, aged between 13 and 17, although some may be as young as 10, are from council estates in poorer areas. They were too frightened to talk to the police. Instead, detectives had to break an ingenious code used by the boys. 
the information we found in the diaries means there are a few very important men around here who are running scared, said a detective. In the next episode, we will hear how that police investigation took a series of dark turns. Thank you for listening to this episode of Unfinished. It was written by me, Charles Thompson, and edited by Tom Bristow. If you'd like to support our work, please visit presspatron.com forward slash unfinishedpodcast.html. All money raised will help fund the costs of future episodes. If you found this episode interesting, please leave us a review on your podcast provider or mention it to a friend. Thank you. From true crime to football, Brexit to folklore. For more great podcasts from Archant, head to audioboom.com slash channel slash Archant.